Good morning. Today's scripture reading is from John chapter 1, verses 14 to 18. Again, that's John chapter 1, starting at verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Redemption City. If I haven't met you, my name is Mark. It is good to be with you. And uh, some of you may know, it is me. Yes, I am your chili cook-off champion. You might remember. Um, just want to remind you all of that. So, so be warned if you have designs on winning next year's chili cook-off. They make you preach. <laughs> okay? I, did, I didn't know that that was part of it. But, um, and preaching is hard, it turns out. I have forgotten that. I did 10 years of it. Uh, in Chicago, but it's been a while. It's been two years since I preached a sermon, and writing a sermon is hard work. So thank you, Mike and Josh and everyone else who, who labors in this work. Uh, it's, it's not easy. If you also still want to win the chili cook-off next year, despite the preaching requirement, uh, I have a tip for you. Just take piles of brisket and bacon, put it in a pot, and call it chili. Right? It's cheating, but no one cares, right? and, and, you'll, and you will win. Um, all right, enough uh, chili talk. Merry Christmas, Redemption City. We are only six days away from the glory. Actually, today is the final Sunday of Advent, and Advent is the season of anticipation. We've been anticipating the coming of Christmas. This is our last Sunday of anticipation, and so what I want to do today is just zero in and consider what exactly is it that we are anticipating? What is it that you're anticipating as you're waiting for Christmas? Why do we take four days, four Sundays of the liturgical calendar and build up toward this Christmas moment? Why do we shut the world down to celebrate Christmas Day? Even people who aren't Christians all over this planet honor this day. Why? What is the big deal about Christmas? Well, I have an answer for us, but it's going to require a bit of explaining, so you're going to have to bear with me, okay? Here's my answer about the big deal about Christmas. Without Christmas, there is no such thing as human life. Without Christmas, there is no such thing as true human life. There's imitation human life. But there is no such thing as true human life. What happened at Christmas is the only thing that can make human persons fully alive. I want to explain what I mean by that, but before I do that, let me pray for us. Father, we are desperate for you to meet us in these moments, what we do in church is pathetic 
and silly apart from your presence coming and filling our hearts with your heart, filling our minds with your mind. So we pray that you would do that work now as we gather here together and hear from your word. Would you speak to us? Would you minister to us? Would you allow us to encounter you and be transformed by you? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so I need to explain myself. What exactly is it that I mean? Well, remember a few months ago, maybe a couple months ago, when our intrepid pastor, Mike Bartlett, waded into the story of Abraham and Isaac? You remember the famous story of the Akidah, when Abraham is called to bind his son Isaac and sacrifice him to God? This is this alarming story in the Old Testament. And that story is placed in the biblical narrative of Abraham as really the culmination of everything that God has been doing in the life of Abraham to that point. When we first meet Abraham, you'll recall, he's sort of half alive or half a man, as it were. He has some faith. He has some notion of following God. God comes to Abraham and speaks to him and says, go to a place that I will show you. And Abraham goes. He's willing in some regard to follow God, but his faith is more of an abstraction. God is more of an idea. God's a good idea to Abraham. He's someone worth following, but he's not someone worth trusting with life and death. And we very quickly see that in the narrative of Abraham. When things get serious, when his own neck is on the line, he's happy to sell his wife to another man, to give his wife to another man to save his own skin. When the threat of having his family line not endure is present, he's happy to sleep with his maid. See, part of Abraham is willing to follow God. Part of Abraham is willing to trust God in a sense, or at least believe right things about God, or believe in God. But Abraham is not yet willing to entrust the fine china of his life to God. He's not yet willing to follow God into those things that could really cost him. He's a double-minded man. Half of him is alive and full of faith, and the other half is still committed to his own self-rule, to himself as being his own God. But God, as we see in the narrative of Abraham, begins to do a work in this great father of the faith. And the way God goes about doing this work is to increasingly manifest himself to Abraham. We see Abraham go from being a double-minded man, having some semblance of faith, belief in God, to a man who is willing to trust God to such extent that he would even sacrifice his own son. How is that transformation taking place over the life of Abraham? It's by God increasingly manifesting himself to Abraham. God spoke to Abraham at first, go to a place that I will show you. He gave Abraham his word, his direction. But then God makes a promise to Abraham that he will bear a son. And Abraham, in fact, then has a son. God's word becomes flesh. God's word manifests in historical reality in such a way that Abraham can hold his baby son 
Isaac the testimony to the truth of God, and he's now experiencing the reality of God, the promises of God, the truth of God, as near as a baby in his arms. And this, we see, is what transforms Abraham. It's the word of God becoming flesh, the reality of God manifesting in a way that he can hold and touch. In the climactic moment of Abraham's story, when he is called to sacrifice Isaac to God, who appears in that moment to stay the hand of Abraham? The scripture tells us it's the angel of the Lord. And the theologians will tell you that that indeed is Christ. What happens at the final moment of this transforming act of God in the life of Abraham? Pre-Christmas happens. God manifests himself in history. The word becomes flesh, as it were, in a pre-incarnate way. Jesus is made manifest. Christmas and the transformation of Abraham go together. And God finishes his work in Abraham in this way by manifesting himself to Abraham, by coming in to Abraham's life in a flesh and blood reality, in a way that Abraham can see and hold and taste and touch. And God says, ah, now you see my work in Abraham is complete because look who Abraham has now become. He has become the very likeness of his father, willing to sacrifice his own son. Could there be a more perfect picture of the likeness of God the Father than one who is willing to sacrifice his own son in the name of love? And this is who God has made Abraham to be. Christmas makes Abraham into the very likeness of the Father. It brings him into fullness of life. He is now the man that God initially designed him to be because Christ is manifest in history. Here's what I want you to see. The way that God finishes his work in people is to make himself manifest to them. The way that God finishes his work in people is for his word to become flesh. To become so real in your life that you can't deny it. That you encounter the living God and you encounter what it is that you were made for, which is to know him, to be with him, even to be one with him. Whatever your abstract ideas about God, whatever your teachings about God, whatever you've learned about God, it pales in comparison to when he moves in on your block and awakens you to who you are, to true life, to life with him. His word becomes flesh. That's what our text for today is all about this early mid segment of the first chapter of the Gospel of John. Susie read it for us a minute ago. Verse 14 says this And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace 
and truth. John here makes the Christmas announcement. The word became flesh and brought the glory of God right into where we live. So that we could see it, so that we could hold it, so that we could apprehend it. So we wouldn't have to doubt or wonder what God is like. He's here to have dinner with, to engage with, to have a conversation with it. With He's not a God simply to be believed in. He's not a God to be held in right regard only, or to believe the right things about. He's a God to be encountered and experienced. That's what Christmas is. It's God come to give us himself. And so then to transform us into being fully alive people. That's what we're looking for. That's what we're longing for. That's what we're anticipating when we're anticipating Christmas. It's the arrival of God in our lives. So let me ask you, do you know what it is to experience God in that way? To have his manifest presence on your block, to encounter him in a way that transforms you and arrests you? Has his word ever become flesh in your life? See, because Christmas Day and the 30 plus years of the life of Jesus, that was the punctuated historical demonstration of what God is always doing. God is always making himself manifest to his persons. He's always entering flesh, as it were. He's always coming down for us, breaking through for us, moving in on our block for us, so that we could experience him, so that we could know him. As John writes elsewhere, the dwelling place of God is with mankind. This is his prerogative. This is what he's all about. Christmas erupts into history to awaken us to that reality, to show us that reality. God is the kind of God who means to come to us, who means to be with us, who means to make himself manifest to us. Not merely to teach us from afar, but to come be our friend, to hold us and have us hold him. He's always inviting us to this. So have you ever seen him? Have you ever experienced him manifest in the flesh in that way? I can tell you a little over two years ago, Mike mentioned in a past life I was a pastor in Chicago. And my family had moved to Chicago in 2009 uh, from Seattle to start a church. It was a wild adventure. We knew no one. And we set out on this great journey. And we ministered in Chicago for 10 years. And there were many wonderful moments that we experienced there. Lots of moments that stretched our faith and moments when we saw and encountered God. But over the course of that 10 years, and especially toward the end, I got a little lost. I sort of forgot why it was that I had set out to do that work in the first place. And it's easy to do for a pastor. I got caught up in building campaigns and 
org charts and leadership structures. It started to matter to me far too much what other people thought of me. It's important that you care what other people think of you. That's why you put on deodorant. But it mattered to me too much. And then things got really hard. Conflict happened. There were leadership failures, my own and those of others. And I was absolutely drowning and wondering, what is the point of all of this? I was in completely over my head. And then a little more than two years ago, I was in the middle of this season on a retreat with a spiritual formation group that I was a part of. And I was journaling some prayers during a time of solitude. Josh always talks about, Pastor Josh always talks about times of solitude. They're important. I was journaling during a time of solitude, and all of a sudden I was interrupted. And I started to write, not my prayers to God, but I started to write God's words to me. And I want to share just a little bit of that with you. Mark, you have known me. You have known me in your heart. And you have seen and heard and spoken from that place. I have burned brightly in you. Do not forget. I'm calling you to remember and go deeper. Those words were so significant to me at that time, still very significant to me, because they reminded me of the only thing that matters. I know God. I've experienced God. He has come to me in real ways over the course of my life. He's arrested my life. If you know God... You have everything. In the face of anything that could happen, in the face of everything else falling apart, if you have God, you lose nothing. You have everything that you were made for, everything that you were designed to have is yours and it's in your hand. The only threat to me, no matter how bad things get, is for me to forget that. That's the only threat to me. It's the only threat to you if I forget the very source of my life and being. Because having God is having everything. As Jesus says, this is eternal life, to know God and the one that he has sent. So to know about God is good. Don't get me wrong. To know about him is good. To know his precepts and his teachings and his laws, all of that is Good, but it won't sustain you when the foundations shake. Knowing his words won't be enough when everything crumbles around you as it did for me in Chicago and as it will for you at many points in your life, I promise, I'm sure has already. When everything collapses, only Christmas will do. Only an encounter with the living God, an experience of God made flesh. 
Last month, my wife and I had a chance to watch a movie, which we rarely get a chance to watch a movie because I work in construction now, and so I'm usually asleep by about the third bite of dinner. So on rare occasions, I feel like I have enough energy and we can start soon enough, just be really rude to the kids and send them away and start the movie. So when we do this, we make every effort to find a decent movie, and boy, did we. We found a good one. I got a recommendation for you. It's an Italian film. It's called Happy as Lazaro. I think I liked it more than my wife, to be fair. But I think it's a really wonderful movie. It's about a young man living in rural Italy who is a bit naive. He lives among an oppressed people group, a people group that are exploited. They work the land for their sustenance. They never quite have enough to eat. They're in profound poverty. And Lazaro seems to be somewhat oblivious to the reality of this oppression. There's really a chain of oppression that ends with this people group. And so his community are the worst of the worst, the lowest of the lowest. And so they take out all of their bitterness and angst on Lazaro because he's the lowest in their clan. And so they dump their chores on him and they take advantage of him and he's often the scapegoat for various crimes. And he never really seems to be too bothered by this. He's able to somehow absorb all of it without becoming bitter. He's somewhat naive to it. It's like there's this picture that the movie paints of the whole world walking on each other's heads to get theirs. And Lazarus is just getting happily trampled. He seems to be the only character who's actually happy. And he's unwilling to pass along this chain of exploitation. And at one point in the movie, he suffers a terrible fall and actually dies. And yet, that isn't the end of his story. His name is Lazaro, as in Lazarus start to do the math. The movie gets pretty wonderful. I'll try not to spoil it for you. But I say all that to say there's a great moment near the end of the film. Lazaro is, but at this point in his second life or maybe his third life or fourth life, who knows? It's not really spelled out. And he reunites with his community now in a big city. And there's a middle-aged woman there who Lazarus knew when he was young, grew up with her. She used to be his age. Now she's much older than him. Resurrection is mysterious. Not sure how that all works exactly. But she's a street scammer now. She's a street hustler. She spends every day scamming people out of their hard-earned money. But when Lazarus arrives on the scene in the big city, she has a fresh experience of him. She grew up with him. But now, for the first time, perhaps because he's so out of place in that environment, she sees him, she encounters him, and she is transformed. There's this great moment where they're all invited to a a dinner at someone's house. This woman, Antonia, and Lazaro, and the family and community, and they spend a whole week's wages to buy the most expensive pastries they can in this Italian city, and they go to this great dinner and they arrive at the dinner and the woman opens the door and she looks at them and sees that they're street people and she says, no, 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 you can't come in here. She rejects them at the dinner and they sort of sadly turn to go and she says, but could you leave the pastries? 
<laughs> and the family, of course, scoffs. Like, no way are we leaving these pastries for you. But Antonia says, no, no, of course. And she gives the pastries to this woman. And Lazaro and Antonia and this family, they walk out into the street from that moment of mistreatment and exploitation and they hear this beautiful church music wafting in the night air and they walk into this church and they're just being ministered to by the music. And a nun quickly hustles over to them and says, no, no, you can't be here. This is a private event. You have to leave. And they say, no, no, we're just standing in the back. We just need a moment, just need to receive what's being offered here from this church. And she says, no, no. And she shoes them out the door. And they walk out the door of the church and the organist goes to continue playing these beautiful notes and he's stunned to discover that the organ can no longer fill the building with sound because the music has left the building. And it is following Lazaro and his disciple down the street. There is a way of being and a way of living that makes music And there is a way of being and a way of living that will make music leave churches. Even this one. And the difference is Christmas. The difference is whether you have had an encounter, a flesh and blood encounter with the living God. Whether he has manifest himself to you in such a way that you can apprehend People who encountered Jesus in his time, you saw this happen in their lives. Their lives were overturned. They acted like Antonia with Lazaro. John tells of another John, John the baptizer. He writes this, John bore witness about him, that's Jesus, and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. This John the baptizer that's being spoken of here, actually Jesus' cousin, testifies that this Jesus is God-made flesh. He was before me, he says. That is to say, he's the eternal one. He's the eternal God, and he's now come to live among us. This testimony of John is true, and it changes everything. John, the gospel writer, adds in the next verse, for from his fullness we have all received grace Upon grace. When Christmas happens to you, when the word becomes flesh, grace piles on grace. Life piles on life. life. (laughs) Fullness piles on fullness. What need, what possible need would you have to exploit anyone when you are overflowing with life and grace and fullness? Do you know what that's like? Have you experienced that? Maybe you don't. Maybe you have never had an experience of God in flesh. Maybe everything that I'm saying this morning sounds like nonsense, sounds like fairy tales. But maybe, just maybe, a part of you wants it to be true. Maybe there's just a little spark of desire in you for an encounter with God like I'm speaking of. 
If that's you, don't stamp that out. Let it smolder. Let it smoke. And God will meet you. I tell you that he will. He lives to meet people in the spark, in the littlest spark, the littlest ember of their desire for him. He is Lord of Christmas. And he would fill the calendar with it as the waters cover the sea. Now I suspect that most of you, in fact, have had some encounter with God. For most of you in this room, that's why you're in church, because you have experienced God made real, made manifest, God become flesh in some way. It's not a foreign idea to you. But I also know from experience that that can be easy to forget. That the memory of that can grow dim. Maybe you're someone who has had profound experiences with God, but it's been a while. There's tender places in your heart that he has formed in you, but you don't often live out of those tender places. You've retreated. You've gone back to that safer place of simply belief in God. Believing the right things about God. Ordering your life more or less in the way that God would instruct you. But you've forgotten what it is to know God. I want to caution you. Don't let the struggle of life harden you. Or turn you into a cynic. You were made to be happy as Lazaro. You were made for a different kind of living. To live in the tender places that God has formed in you. Don't let the weariness of the hardships of life rob you of the joy that he's given. You were made for Christmas. So stop resisting it. Stop resisting him. John writes in verse 17 and 18, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. God, God gave us his word for a reason. The law came through Moses. God gives us instruction through Moses. And that's right, that's good, that's holy, that's helpful. But it won't lead you out of the dark. When God gave the law, some of you know the story in the book of Genesis, the people of Israel heard it and said, everything that you say we will do. And then Moses went back up on the mountain and they broke every one of the Ten Commandments in like 20 minutes. And only Moses was transformed. Why? Because he went up on the mountain and he encountered the living God. And the word became flesh and passed before him. An historical encounter, a real moment. Moses, like Abraham, had a pre-Christmas. And it changed everything. Christmas happens, it happened so that we can all encounter God 
like Moses did. Last month, my wife and I had a chance to go see a theatrical performance of The Great Divorce. We actually took Mike and Jamie Bartlett as a pastor appreciation gift. Really, we wanted to just go ourselves, but we couldn't justify the expense. So by turning it into a pastor appreciation gift, we could justify it. It cost twice as much, but it was well worth it. But the whole day was a setup because early that morning, my wife and I got into a little bit of a spat. That's a thing in my marriage, probably not yours. It wasn't a big deal, but there was some tension. And we weren't really able to address it because our itinerary for the day was rather full. And so when we were finally driving to this performance in the afternoon, my wife says, do you want to talk about this morning? Or do you want to just do that for later? And I foolishly said, no, no, this is not a big deal. We can handle this right now in the car. (laughs) And so we began to open it up and unpack it and the hurt feelings and the misunderstanding and the, you know, the tit for tat and everything that went back and forth. And by the time we were pulling into our parking space at DeVos Place Garage, there was blood streaming out of the minivan all over the garage floor. We had picked every marriage scab for the last you know, 18 years of marriage and now we had to walk in to this performance of The Great Divorce. And we were late, so we were hustling in and we were trying to act like we're friendly with Mike and Jamie. You know, our pastors are there. And, you know, and, um, and we got inside the performance. We haven't really worked it out at all. We kind of call it a semi-truce, not really. And we sit down and the lights go off. And my mind is racing. How am I going to navigate this? What do I have to say? What do I have to do? How can I apologize? How can I not apologize? How can I get away with something? How can I... And then the performance just starts. And if you're familiar with C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce, it's a depiction of why it is that people go to heaven or hell. And how it is that we work our way in our mind up to thinking that sin is such a big deal that we have to hold on to it and we'd rather go to hell than heaven. And I'm watching this performance play out and there's a moment in the performance, as in the book, when a character says, at the end of the day, there are only two kinds of people. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, thy will be done. And at that moment, tears started just running down my face. And it was everything I could do to not let my sobbing, heaving chest hit the back of the head of the person in front of me. Because it was, this whole thing with my wife was such folly. And I could just see through it in that moment. And my heart swelled with love and grace and patience for her, for me, for our present condition. And we were actually able to talk about it later that night in a completely different spirit. Why? Because I figured it out? Because I carefully examined the words of God for how to navigate marital conflict? No. Because Christmas happened. Right at DeVos Place. An encounter with the living God. And it transforms you. It changes you. That's why Christmas happens that we can all have that kind of encounter that Moses had on the mountain, an encounter that lights up our faces with the glory of God, an encounter that transforms us into who we really are, into humans who are fully alive, fully human, and ultimately an encounter that will raise us from the dead, make us happy as Lazarus. Merry Christmas, Redemption City. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you don't leave us 
stuck in the folly of our own machinations, trying to figure out our relationships and lives on our own. We thank you that you break in. We thank you for Christmas and its reality. Thank you that it's just six days away. I pray for those who maybe have never known you, never encountered you, that you would meet them even now, even now that their Christmas would be six hours away, six minutes away, or even right now in this moment. Lord, arrest us all with your presence, with your manifest reality. Make us new creatures by the power of your Son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.